Hello everyone, grab that sun cream and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 6th of September 2023. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading for you this week, we have myself, Nathan, Angela, Christine, Andrew, sportsman Ian, Helen, Mina, Simon, and of course, not forgetting the famous Flashback Roger. In this week's edition, we have the latest local news for the black country, the quiz with Mina, an update from Beacon, We have the latest football news for both Wolves and West Bromwich Albion. A did you know section from Flashback Roger. We have the weather for the week ahead. And with our famous British summer finally finding its way, we have a special insight into the realms of rambling. The version of walking for pleasure, that is. Although some may say I'm good at the other kinds too. Something a little different to start this week, though, with a round of Guess the Sound. Andrew will be letting you know the answers a little later on in the edition. So, let's see if you can figure out what this may be. Any ideas? Good luck guessing. Time now for some local news. From Christine. But first, Angela. Students at a black country school face disruption at the start of the new term after a building was found to contain a type of concrete at the centre of safety concerns. More than 100 schools in England have been told to close areas with reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, RAAC, unless they can be made safe. The government escalated concerns over the material late last week, just days before the new academic year. So, what is RAAC concrete and why is it a safety risk? Here is what we know so far about the material at the centre of all this. Reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, RAAC, is a lightweight material that was used in roofs, floors and walls between the 1950s and 1990s, mostly on one- and two-storey buildings. It is a cheaper alternative to standard concrete. It is quicker to produce and easier to install. It is aerated or bubbly like an aero chocolate bar but it is less durable and has a limited lifespan of around 30 years. Its structural behaviour differs significantly from traditional reinforced concrete. Moreover, it is susceptible to structural failure when exposed to moisture. The bubbles can allow water to enter the material. If that happens, any reinforcing bar within the RAAC can also decay, rust and weaken. Because of this, rack is often coated with another material such as bitumen on roofing panels, but this material can also degrade. The Standing Committee on Structural Safety, SCOSS, noted that, although called concrete, rack is very different from traditional concrete 
and, because of the way in which it was made, much weaker. According to Loughborough University, there are tens of thousands of these structural panels already in use and many are showing signs of wear and tear and deterioration. The health and safety executive says rack is now beyond its lifespan and may collapse with little or no notice. RAAC was found at Wood Green Academy, Wensbury, over the summer, its head teacher said. Sandwell Council said it was possible there may be a partial closure at the school, but final surveys would confirm the amount of remedial work that would be needed. A total of 156 schools in England have been confirmed as having RAAC since 2022. Of those, 52 were deemed a critical risk and safety measures have already been put in place. The others have been left contemplating how to welcome back pupils after the government's latest guidance, sparked by the collapse of a beam previously considered to be safe. Councils in Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Warsaw and Dudley have told BBC Radio WM none of their schools were thought to be affected by the RAAC issue. Up next, we hear from Helen, who, as usual, has our latest Beacon update. Hi, everyone. It's Helen from Beacon. I am back with your weekly update of everything that's been going on here at the charity. Now, we're starting this week with a very big thank you to some fundraisers who have taken their support to a whole new height. Our assistive technology trainer, Alistair, who I'm sure some of you have met, and his friend Josh scaled the Lake District's Five Peaks Challenge, tackling five of England's most demanding peaks, including Scarfell Pike, in aid of Beacon. They were originally due to be joined by our sight loss advisor, Nathan, who again, I'm sure some of you have met. He sadly couldn't make it, but they even made sure he was there in spirit by taking a mask of his face to get a photo with at the top. Their fantastic fundraising has raised £165 in aid of Beacon so far, and it's not too late if you'd like to show your support for them. You can donate online at www.justgiving.com. That's justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash beacon five peaks challenge. That's beacon five peaks challenge. Now, whether it's taking a trip to the garden center or enjoying a stroll around a local beauty spot, our September community activity program has got you covered. How are we in September? Now, you can find out what we've got lined up and how you can get involved on our website, www.beaconvision.org or always give us a call on 01902 Now, talking about September, we'd like to say good luck to everyone starting their Swim 250 Challenge in Aid of Beacon this week. We're asking you to swim 250 lengths of a pool or 250 minutes in open water during September to help ensure no one faces sight loss alone. Why 250? Well, sadly, that's how many people in the UK are given the devastating news that they're losing their sight every day. If you'd like to get involved, again, just head to our website. It's www.beaconvision.org forward slash swim hyphen 250. Now, last this week, have you got your ticket yet? Don't forget, our family fun night is taking place at the Cabin Public House in Sedgley on Friday, September the 8th, and we would love for you to join us. There'll be party games, including heads or tails, and play your cards right. Love that one. And you can also let loose on the dance floor. Tickets are £7 for adults, £6 for children, £20 for family four, or £30 for family six. You can get your ticket at the pub, our reception or Sedgley shop until noon on Thursday the 7th or call us on 01902 That's it for this week. I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for that update, Helen. Next up, we have another block of local news. Did you manage to guess this sound from earlier in the edition? Well, that was the sound of an electric scooter or e-scooter 
had in the further ambience of a bustling street environment. And these modern modes of transport are virtually silent. After a four-month review of their safety, last month saw the return of the e-scooter to the streets of the West Midlands region. And two campaigners, Claire Williams and Louise Connop, members of one of the region's sightless council, a volunteer group led by blind and partially sighted members and funded by Thomas Pocklington Trust, are now claiming that the scooters are causing guide dogs to step in their tracks, become confused and very scared. The Rive scheme is run by Operator Beryl, which took the contract with Transport for West Midlands, TFWM, following an earlier trial by Voy. According to the issue, are illegal, privately owned e-scooters which are sold in shops despite not being allowed on the streets, say the campaigners. It really frightens my dog when they go past her very close by, said Claire, who has a fox red Labrador retriever cross called Keita. And obviously it does scare me as well because I don't know that they are coming. Quita is Claire's second guide dog in 20 years, since the day her life changed forever. Driving to her job as a teacher of a primary school in Birmingham, she noticed the railings at the side of the road looked strangely wavy. Her optician sent her straight away to the eye hospital, where she was diagnosed with macular degeneration and today she can just see from the edges of her vision she said getting a guide dog revolutionized her life making it much easier to get about you can also get your independence so that you can do things without having to ask somebody or wait for somebody want e-scooters to be used safely and responsibly but think without government legislation to set official rules the devices are causing havoc for people with limited sight. Both women value their independence and want other visually impaired people to be able to get about confidently something they say increased during the four months the e-scooter scheme was paused. But with their return, they fear people who need canes and guide dogs will become more isolated, choosing to stay indoors unless the government brings in legislation. Louise, 37, was born partially sighted and registered blind, now severely sight impaired, when she turned seven. She described herself as growing up in a sighted world and attended a mainstream school with no peer support. She didn't even meet another visually impaired person until she was 30. I'd always been the odd one out. I was bullied all the way through school, college and then work, where I'd been discriminated against a few times, she said. It was when she started working for a local sight loss charity that she began to feel more comfortable. Suddenly, I wasn't the odd one out. Sighted people were. And it was, pardon the pun, an eye-opener, because it was just like, wow, these people kind of just get it, like they understand. 
I haven't got to explain what I can and can't see or do. I'm not a woe is me person, I'm a glass half full girl, but it's taken all of that bad baggage to get to that point. The Sight Loss Council was involved in discussions with TFWM and VOI from the beginning of the trial, which started in October 2020 and continued to be part of stakeholder meetings. Claire and Louise said their concerns were listened to and they managed to get mandatory parking zones in the city centre, which Beryl brought in everywhere, and number plates. But they are keen for greater action, including adding an acoustic noise to devices so that visually impaired people and their dogs can hear them coming. Members even took part in a research project by the University of Warwick to select the best noise to use, but it is yet to be adopted. Another concern is some of the bays where e-scooters and bikes are left are on the pavement with a painted border rather than a physical structure, which cane users reportedly find hard to detect. Although Beryl said it uses raised paint compliant with Department for Transport, DFT, regulations. Currently, e-scooters are also classed as bikes and can be used on bike lanes some of which are on pavements where Claire said people expect to be safe not to come across a powered device at 30 miles per hour. Claire and Louise are keen to stress they don't want to get rid of the devices, seeing how useful they are, but they want to continue working with TFWM and Beryl and to push for better safety features and legislation for everybody. Louise said, we want to be able to take responsibility for our own safety and we don't have that option at the minute. There isn't a sound, they're being ridden on our pavements. You know, I always say if I decided to just walk down the middle of the street, I'd be whisked off by men in white coats. That's for the cars, the pavement is for us. You do you and we will all get on quite well in society. A spokesperson for Beryl said, Safety is paramount to us and we are constantly reviewing our schemes and processes alongside our local authority partners to ensure they are being delivered as effectively as possible. We're currently monitoring and evaluating a number of further safety measures, including acoustic alerts for e-scooters and Blind Square, an app which helps blind people in their daily lives in line with advice from the Department for Transport, DFT. As we expand the scheme, we will deploy physical infrastructure where appropriate, in consultation with landowners and local authorities. We have established relationships with site loss councils and charities such as RNIB and Thomas Pocklington Trust and have consulted with them across all of our current schemes. We hold regular stakeholder sessions to gain feedback, as well as anonymous surveys to measure progress, walking tours of bays and meet the vehicle sessions. Now it's time to test your knowledge as we have the quiz questions for this edition brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question 1.
What year did the speaking clock appear in the UK? Question two. Whose voice was first used here in the UK? Question three. When was the original machinery first replaced? Question four. How many different voices have been used? Question five. What did Claire Balding say in her version for comic relief? And finally, question six. How many calls are made each year to the speaking clock? I will be back later with you in the show to answer all your questions. But for now, best of luck. Cheers for those questions, Mina. Mm, I'll get my mind working on them. Up now, however, is another block of local news. The sights and sounds of the 1950s will be celebrated at an evening of toe-tapping live music, exciting performers and a bustling vintage market. Black Country Living Museum will be hosting Rockin' and Rollin', a 1950s evening on Saturday, September 9th, as part of its celebration of the social and cultural revolution of the decade. A spokeswoman for Black Country Living Museum said... From the austerity of the years following World War II to the end of a decade where we'd never had it so good, you'll be sure to experience the essence of an era marked by culture, vibrancy and change. Groove the night away to Whiskey Jean and the Chasers and the sultry tones of Aisha Khan and the Rajas. Tap your feet to the rock and roll beat of Junko Shakers and enjoy a whole host of other acts ready to transport you back to a decade of unforgettable music. Join the incredible Flaming Feathers as they showcase iconic dance routines of the era and have a go yourself at replicating the Lindy Hop style of the swing era as they fill the streets with their 1950s moves. Explore the rise of youth culture among the working classes with teddy boys and girls and find out more about their link with rock and roll and the Edwardian dandies. What did the black country make of this fashion revolution? Find out on the night. Dressing the part? Finish off your look with a haircut and wash from Laurie Thomas Hairdressers on the museum's new 1940s to 60s High Street to feel like one of the stars of the day. Or complete your outfit with a range of clothing from the decade from the vintage market. With food, drinks and entertainment to transport you back to an era of excitement, get ready to hear, see, taste and smell all that the 1950s had to offer in the black country and beyond. To find out more, go to bclm.com. A black country antiques and collectibles store is looking for the family of a doll with a touching backstory. Sims and Barrett Emporium in Cradley Heath has taken possession of a Victorian-era doll which owner Phil Sims said was brought in by a woman and which she said had a very interesting story. He said, Part of my role at the shop is that I am the antiques person and buy and sell all the antiques in the shop. And this lady came into the shop with the doll, which was a more interesting story than most things. Basically, it's a late Victorian, around 1880s or 1890s doll, 
which was owned by a woman called Doris Harrison, who was given the doll as a present on her seventh birthday in 1907. The legend that we have, and which we can back up from a 1960s newspaper story about her, is that she was promised by her grandmother that she would get a life-size doll for her seventh birthday. But her grandmother suddenly died before that birthday. That left Doris thinking that she'd never get the doll, but her grandmother had actually bought it for her before she died, so Doris got it as a present from her parents. Mr Sims said the interesting bit about the doll had come from a newspaper cutting that he had been given showing Doris with the doll sometime in the 1960s. He said, We got a photo of her from the 1960s with the doll and a newspaper clipping in which she said she had been promised the doll by her grandmother and despite the sad circumstances, she had received the doll and said she was never going to live without it. She appears to have been true to her word and the lady who brought it in to us said she just wanted it to go to a good home as Doris had loved it for all those years. How this woman came to get hold of it was that her father used to do house clearances for solicitors and later states in the 1970s and believes that he picked it up as part of the clearances and just put it in his loft which she then found when he died. Mr. Sims said the doll had been found in an uncared-for state, with the legs and kneecaps all detached below the torso and work being needed to restore it. He said his new aim after restoring it was to find the family of Doris Harrison, who lived on Steel Road in Northfield in Birmingham at the time of the newspaper article in 1965, and give the doll back to them. He said... What we would look to do is to get it restored to reattach all the limbs together, so we've got to find a doll restorer to get her repaired, which could cost around £100. We think it would be a great story to be able to find the original family and pass the doll back to them after being locked up, because it had years of love from Doris. We would only look at selling it if the family aren't able to come forward, but we're not looking at it as a profit-making exercise more a way of repatriating the doll back to her family. To find out more about the store and to get in touch, go to simsbarrettemporium.co.uk Now then, grab yourself a cuppa and find your comfy spot as it's time for some drama with Andrew. Love and war cry, a marriage made in leak. Staffordshire local Ernie Salt, 81, has been selling the Salvation Army war crime magazine, the official Salvation Army weekly publication in the region for over 20 years, and never imagined he would fall in love again following the death of his wife several years ago. Ernie is well known in the historic market town of Leek and has attended the Salvation Army Church since 1989. He can be seen selling the magazine most Wednesday and Saturday mornings, having a chat in the process. In May last year, on an ordinary day in Leek, an unexpected Ernie had no idea that love was actually only around the corner. Ernie said, she used to come up Derby Street and I had no idea I was on the radar at all. Not the foggiest. And she used to donate regularly. I used to think, oh, that was generous. Thank you very much. Little suspecting anything. Q, Jenny, 74, who returned to Leek in 2021 after living in Hull for 25 years. 
Jenny always enjoyed having a little chat to Ernie when she bought a copy of The War Cry. She said, We met through The War Cry and then I invited him for a cup of coffee and the rest is history. But I liked Ernie for a while and one night when I went to bed I said to God, Can I have Ernie please? As I quite like him. And the next thing is, I don't know how, but we ended up getting married. That was one prayer that was answered. I got buy one, get one free. I got to know Keith, Ernie's son, and he got on well with me. And we are now quite a nice little family. Romance blossomed between the pair in May 2022. They got engaged in August that year and married in April 2023. Jenny said, We had the most amazing wedding at the Salvation Army with a blessing from the minister at my church at the same time. We both have a lot in common. I'm still getting used to the new name. Ernie said, I found it quite easy, with a big smile on his face. Jenny had also been married previously and said, I've moved back because I had my family here, my son and his children. Then I met Ernie. I was definitely back here in Leek for a reason. We can look after each other now. My Church of England service finishes at 10.30 and he starts at 11. So I do a quick wash up and get down there for the Sally Army service. I get the best of both worlds. I'm able to sit in the service and enjoy it. Ernie comes to support me and I support him. We do separate churches but together as well. Ernie and Jenny are off on holiday to Greece in October. Jenny, who has never been outside the UK before, says, this will be quite an adventure. They are both excited about creating new memories together. Blind traveller and TV personality, Amar, the blind adventurer Latif, has documented some of his travels on TV. This article explains Amar's sight loss, his love of walking as a way of discovering the world, and describes his delight in becoming the newly appointed president of the Ramblers. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK Traveller and TV personality Amar Latif, also known as the Blind Adventurer, has been appointed as the new president of the Ramblers this year. After losing 95% of his sight by the age of 18, Amar decided that he couldn't let life pass him by, so he started travelling to discover the world. Part of his enjoyment of travelling is being out in the open air, to experience the feel, the sounds and the smells of nature firsthand. And it is this that draws him to rambling. In this article, recorded for soundings by Suzanne from Kings Lynn Talking Newspaper, with the permission of the ramblers, Amar talks about his sight loss, his love of travel and why he is delighted to become the ramblers' president.
I was so humbled to be asked to be the president of the Ramblers. I didn't have to think too hard about my answer. I love walking. I love being able to inspire others to get out walking and to feel the benefits. So I was delighted to accept the role. Dealing with blindness at an early age. When I was round the age of about 18, I woke up one day and I couldn't see the poster on the wall. All I could see was a thick white cloud. I couldn't see the faces of my mum or dad or my brothers and sisters. I realised that I was blind. I remember thinking that my life was over. For the next few months I was depressed. I was a prisoner in my room and in my own head. My mum would say I couldn't leave the house unaccompanied. And that was at the time when everyone's going out, taking on jobs, starting uni, dating, driving, etc. And I just couldn't imagine how on earth I would be able to continue. But then my mindset changed. I realised that the world doesn't wait for you and we've only got one life. And so within a short space of time, I just decided to start saying yes to things. I went to university. Things were hard and I struggled, but I just kept going. And each time I conquered something and had a small win, it gave me more confidence to go on. Since becoming blind, I've become good at overcoming barriers and preconceptions. Travelling the world. I did accountancy for many years and then I wanted to travel and see the world. I faced so much rejection from group travel companies, so I started my own travel company called Travelize. For the last 20 years, we've taken thousands of groups all over the world on holiday and we started offering walking trips for blind and sighted people. I realised what a positive impact that was having. My best adventure so far was Nicaragua. I walked from the Atlantic coast of Nicaragua in Central America right across to the Pacific Ocean. 220 miles through dense tropical jungle in 40 degrees centigrade heat. We crossed a shark-infested lake and then walked up a 5,000-foot volcano. It was just so incredible. At night, the jungle just comes alive and you hear noises in 3D, like nature's own surround sound. The joy of rambling. People ask me how I can enjoy rambling as a blind person. It's actually incredible. I'm so curious because I can't see. I love feeling the ground beneath my feet. Smelling wildflowers or the sheep and the cattle. Hearing the wind whistling through the trees. Feeling the sun on my back. When you start exploring the world with all your senses, the world properly comes alive for you. I get my sighted companions to build a picture for me. And that is just like reading a book. You are building the picture yourself. And often the book is much better than the film. And when you have been out there in the countryside, out in the wild, it follows you back in your thoughts. It has such a huge impact on your mindset. Inspiring others. I was so excited when I was offered the chance to be the president of the Ramblers. It is such an incredible charity. I hope to inspire people who think, for whatever reason, that walking in the great outdoors isn't for them. I think having an Asian blind guy as president of the Ramblers helps communicate that rambling is for everyone. I grew up in a Pakistani household. When my parents came to the UK in the 1960s, their primary focus was to earn a living and to support their family. Going out into the countryside for a walk was the last thing on their mind. People always say to me that I'm so positive all the time, but it's not true. When you have a disability, it's a challenge. Life presents you with problems every single day. You need to have a resilient, positive mindset. And whether you've got a disability or not, we all have our down days. But as soon as you step outside and go on a walk, there's an incredible boost of positivity. So for whatever reason, people may not think walking is for them. Or for whatever reason, people don't feel comfortable in the countryside. I'd like to inspire them to get out there and make the most of this beautiful island that we live on. DNF Soundings. Up next, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. 
It's all yours, Roger. Take it away. Hello again everyone. Well I went to the Black Country Museum again last week. There's so much there of interest, but it wasn't until I came back that I heard that Beacon are running a trip out there, and have said that you can listen to the speaking clock in an old phone box. Well, that got me investigating, didn't it? So did you know that? A speaking clock service was first introduced in the United Kingdom on July the 24th, 1936. The voice was that of London telephonist Ethel Jane Kane, who had won a prize of 10 guineas, that's equivalent to 800 pounds or so now, in a competition to find the golden voice. <coughs> Ethel Jane Kane's voice was recorded optically onto the glass discs in a similar way to a film soundtrack. The mechanism used was an array of motors, glass discs, photo cells and valves, which took up the floor space of a small room. In 1963, the original device was replaced by a more modern recording technology using a magnetic drum. It stayed that way until the present digital system was adopted in 1984. The complete apparatus comprises of solid-state microchip and occupies no more shelf space than a small suitcase and has no moving parts at all. And including the current voice of the speaking cloth, there have been five people who made the recordings. The third one was the first male voice to be used. His name was Brian Cobby. Before working for British Telecom, he was an actor and often just provided voices for TV adverts and the like. The time signal, as it's known, is announced as at the third stroke, it will be so many minutes precisely or so many minutes and however many seconds, followed by the famous pips. Over the years, occasionally celebrities have spoken the time. For example, our own Selene Henry did it for comic relief, as did Claire Balding, who announced the time as, as being at the third woof. And the speaking clock is still available from landlines, or by using a mobile phone by dialing 123 and hearing the time. These days though, the time is displayed via the internet on computers, digital assistants like Alexa, and directly to our mobile phones. But believe it or not, over 12 million calls each year are still made to hear the clock speak. Well, how about that then? Who'd have thought it? Hope that some of you go on the outing. I don't think that you'll be disappointed at all. Any road up, I'm off to dig up some more for next week, so I'll make a brew and put my feet up for a while while I eat my digestives. Chocolate ones, of course. Have a good week, folks. Bye for now. Ta-ra a bit. Ta-ra. Up now we have to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us, come rain or shine, by our own Sunny Mina. Well, it's a little late, but it sure looks like summer has finally arrived. Hasn't it been a wonderful week of weather? The weather ahead is forecast to remain glorious too, with it continuing to be dry and warm, with clear blue skies and yet more unbroken September sunshine. Temperatures are forecast to stay high in the 20s, with highs of around 26 degrees in places. With prolonged spells of sunshine, UV levels are expected to stay medium to high. So, again, do remember to stay safe and protect yourselves if you are out and about in the sun for any length of time. The sunrise and sunset times are 6.30am for the sunrise and 7.40pm for the sunset. Friday 8th of September is forecast to be dry with sunny spells. With a refreshing light wind, temperatures are expected to be lovely at 26 degrees. The sunshine looks set to stick with us as we head into the weekend, with Saturday and Sunday both forecast to be full of sunshine. 
temperatures should remain very pleasant and even peak at around 28 degrees on Saturday. There is a chance of some mist early on Sunday, but this should clear quite quickly. The evening may also bring the odd light rain showers in places, but nothing too prolonged. On to next week and the summer weather continues to dominate. It is forecast for the settled spell of warm weather to remain in the region on Monday 11th of September and continue right through to Thursday 14th of September. With just a gentle breeze expected, temperatures should continue to hold up really well, around 28 degrees. Monday and Wednesday do carry the risk of being a little more unsettled and the potential of some light rain showers forming across the region. But all in all, it looks like we are forecast to have another wonderful week ahead. Well, that's all the weather for this week. As always, stay safe and enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Now it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on. An excruciating 96th minute winner dealt Albion a first home defeat of the season. Seconds after they may have downed Huddersfield at the other end. Carlos Corberan's men fell to a poor defeat against his former side. In a championship clash, the Hawthorns' hosts did not deserve to win, but should not have lost. It was Neil Warnock, ever the unpopular visitor to the Hawthorns, and not Corberan, dancing in delight in the technical area in the wake of last Friday's transfer deadline. Huddersfield were the better side overall and value for the win. Albion did not deserve all three points, but will be dismayed at the manner in which they lost. The home side looked buoyant in the early minutes and appeared to have the terriers where they wanted them, penned back with little outball. Corberan's men didn't create any openings in this period, however, and the visitors quickly found a foothold. The 12th minute brought poster protests from the stands. Pressure group Action for Albion's latest initiative was 10,000 posters reading For Sale, Full Sale, all distributed by volunteers pre-game. Thousands upon thousands were held aloft from all four stands and created an impressive look alongside chants against controlling shareholder Guachuan Lai, who is desperate to sell the club. On the pitch, the visitors were still on top as a couple of dangerous deliveries threatened the Albion box. The baggies looked edgy. Passing was sloppy and loose. The home side were unable to combine for much more than two or three passes. The baggies paid for their sloppiness just after half an hour, after a fairly needless corner was conceded. A low shot drilled in from the edge of the box made it 1-0 to Huddersfield. Corberan decided against half-time changes and demanded a response, but if anything, the visitors were again the brighter. But seven minutes after the restart, Albion levelled, out of precious little and against the run of play. John Swift struck an emphatic equaliser, thanks to what you could call a swift counter-attack. It was time to push on for a second, but Albion couldn't force any sustained momentum. Warnock's men used all the tricks in the book to eat up time, and deep into injury time, Albion blinked and were sucker-punched. The previously windless terriers flew on the break to strike in the decisive moment at the death, crashing in a low blow at the Smethwick end, for Bedlam to ensue in the away support. Albion were below par, ponderous, and struggled all game. A rare home disappointment under Corberan, and just a third Hawthorne's defeat in 10 months. Speaking after the game, disappointed Albion boss Carlos Corberan felt his side could not show Huddersfield their best level, and admitted Neil Warnock's visitors were worthy of their win. 
it was not the way the Baggies would have wanted to sign off for the international break. And things were no better for Wolves either, as the struggles away at Selhurst Park continued with another day to forget in the capital. Having failed to win away against Crystal Palace in each of their last four trips to South London, they quickly made it five, with a defensively poor showing. Wolves made a steady start to the game, comfortable in possession and probing forward on occasion. Once Palace found their feet though, their direct play and pace caused consistent problems. That being said, Wolves were also doing their best to be architects of their own downfall, needlessly losing possession in their own penalty box. They required a miraculous Max Kilman intervention. His heroic goal line clearance kept the contest at nil-nil. In what was hardly a good game for the neutral, both sides were struggling to make simple passes. Albeit Palace had the better of the chances as the teams entered half-time drawing nil-nil. The start of the second half continued where the first left off, with neither side keeping possession nor making it an exciting contest. When Wolves did look after the ball and keep it in the final third, to the home crowd's frustration, their ponderous approach saw them struggle to create chances. All the game needed was a simple but effective attacking move, and the hosts created it after 56 minutes. An inviting low cross tapped home at the near post, made it 1-0, and Selhurst Park was rocking. The home contingent were glad all over. Despite that setback, it took Wolves less than 10 minutes to draw level. Neto's excellent delivery from a set-piece was met by Huang at the near post, who saw his looping header find the far corner, although he was fortunate as the ball actually hit his shoulder on the way through. Palace responded fairly well, and the host's superior creativity and fitness came to the fore. Their neat, intricate play started to overrun Wolves in the middle of the park. Wolves were struggling to deal with the pressure and another slick move saw the hosts open up the defence with ease before they fired home a third thereafter. Gary O'Neill's side had more possession in the final minutes of the game but created next to nothing as they wilted in the searing summer sun. Wolves did find a consolation goal through a Mateus Cunha header late on but it was not enough to draw level as they fell to defeat. Wolves' struggle to create clear-cut chances is long-standing, and despite missing out on a striker on transfer deadline day, Gary O'Neill believes he has enough talent to make this Wolves side an attacking threat. He said, goals-wise, time will tell. I think most managers are always keen for more options. We scored two away at Palace today. The window has closed now. This is the group. This is us. This is what we are, and it's my job to make sure we get enough out of them. As you have seen today, the group are capable of having a lot of controlling games. Now the next part is we need to turn some of that into better results. It will be difficult for other people to see this today, of course, because it just goes down to a 3-2 defeat away to Crystal Palace. But big strides have been made from the team that I saw and was working with three weeks ago to where they were today. We lacked a little bit of punch. I think it was over 60 final third entries, which is a lot for an away team. More than Crystal Palace, but we didn't really threaten their goal often enough from those for a variety of reasons. There's still lots of room for improvement. Now, here come the quiz answers, and they're brought to us by Mina. Here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question 1. What year did the speaking clock appear in the UK? 
And the answer is 1936. Question 2. Whose voice was first used here in the UK? And the answer here is Ethel Jane Kane. Question 3. When was the original machinery first replaced? And the answer here is 1963. Question 4. How many different voices have been used? And the answer here is 5, including the current one. Question 5. What did Claire Balding say in her version for Comic Relief? And the answer here is she said, At the third wolf. Question 6. How many calls are made each year to the speaking clock? And the answer here is 12 million. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry, as I will be back next week to test you all again. Bye for now. Earlier on, we heard some truly inspiring words from Amar, the newly appointed president of the Ramblers. And his passion for walking. Walking in the countryside can be an enjoyable pastime, regardless of your level of vision. Here, Soundings contributor Tina gives a detailed audio description of a canal side walk and the sights and sounds she encountered along the way. So, sunscreen on, sunglasses and sun hat at the ready, and bottle of water to hand, as it's time to go rambling. From your armchair. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hello there, it's Tina here. It's a glorious sunny day. Hardly a cloud in evidence, so a walk is what we really need. It's warm into the bargain. A countryside walk, I think. So, After a spot of lunch, we drive up to the canal to our usual parking spot for an airing. It is a shady roadside space in Addington, rarely busy, but very accessible and convenient. There are 16 stone steps down to the towpath at Bridge 20. Grasping the wooden handrail, we negotiate this narrow set of steps, deciding to turn left. Immediately, we walk under the arched road bridge, heading north in the direction of Marple. Deep horizontal grooves are cut into the vertical support edges of this bridge at about waist height. These have existed for over a hundred years, cut by the ropes attached to horses pulling the canal barges along the towpath. They do indeed feature on all the stone uprights of the bridges crossing the Macclesfield Canal. To our right, the water today seems very brown and murky, with scarcely a glimmer of movement. The surface is covered with dust and blossom blown from the trees and shrubs on both banks, plus white fluffy seed heads of dandelions and some fresh green leaves, dislodged by recent winds, I expect. Immediately, we walk alongside a widened canal section, for this is one of the regular turning areas. They allowed even the longest canal boats to about turn. The towpath here is a narrow plank bridge over a concrete overflow regulating that water level. So, within a few yards, the gravelly towpath we arrived at was exchanged for sets under the bridge, these wooden planks, and now to compacted earth. Curving slightly right, we settle into our pace. The grassy and wildflower strewn edges of the canal have obviously been recently cut, and the growth is low and neat, yet it's somehow wild and natural. But the fringe of the towpath away from the water displays verdant growth, including tall, stingy nettles, some very tall yellow buttercups, bending thistles, and knee high grasses in undisciplined splendour. May blossom seems prolific this year on bushes alongside us, providing a scented white blanket clothing the hawthorns. And the greens on the trees and bushes are varied, vivid, and fresh, creating a beautiful natural wall near both banks. 
Yet, there are plenty of spots where those brambles, bushes and trees are absent, providing clear views over both farmland and rolling open scenery, especially to the east across the water. One undulating meadow is a sea of yellow buttercups, making a lovely coloured blanket. And here, the hedge is absent at the water's edge, and the green meadow beyond is well populated with Canada geese. Most are strutting about and relatively quiet. As I watch them, a new pair fly in, landing as though on skis, skidding on the water. This sets off honking galore. The reason is very clear, as parents then shepherd and herd their fluffy bronze goslings away from the intruders. Peace and calm is quickly restored when those new arrivals stay put, not moving onto the meadow with the youngsters. We now pass a mature hedgerow on the left. Beneath it, and at the edge of the towpath, are a series of concrete structures, each about three or four feet high and a foot wide. A few inches from the curved top is a hole through which runs barbed wire, fresh barbed wire mostly, and those structures are in a line. They form an edge. This is the edge between the canal property and the farmer's land. These concrete posts have undoubtedly stood the test of time, generally remaining essentially upright, but with signs of erosion in places. The wilderness of the wild verge obscures some of them almost completely. Those covered with rambling ivy appear like magical characters, seemingly to have emerged from their surroundings. There are 20 or 30 of these concrete markers, yet I imagine they once ran all the whole length of the waterway system. A longboat chugs towards us at a leisurely pace. Plants and solar panels decorate the roof. Bright coloured pictures adorn the side walls and crochet circular tiny net curtains hang in some windows. A cheery hello greets us from the skipper. Then we encounter a cyclist walking his bike. He looks hot and bothered. As he explains to us, his chain has snapped, so he's needing to scoot and walk back home. And it appears this chain was a replacement for one which had failed only a few days ago. No wonder he is frustrated. Beyond another couple of bridges, we hear a cacophony of barring. In a meadow, a large flock of growing lambs seem intent on complaining. Have they just been separated from mums, we wonder? We aren't near enough to disturb them, surely. Then the reason for their noise becomes apparent. A small tractor swoops into their meadow and they rush in that direction. No food for them appears and the two farm workers depart through a gate into an adjoining meadow with much flapping of the animals to keep them at bay. When we return later, the whole flock is missing from their patch and we can't spot them close by either. A family of ducks dart out from the far bank. Escorted by mum, five small duckling bundles zigzag around at great speed. Dad maintains his distance. At the marina, a large number of boats are parked up. A few show open doors, washing drying on a contraption attached to the tiller. One occupant wields a paintbrush. Another sits enjoying the sunshine on the adjacent bank. A group perched on seats next to their boat are refreshing themselves from cans in the corner, whilst a dog remains standing tall on lookout, giving us a very quizzical woof. Many cars are parked close to the jetties, so several people must be round and about. Or, noting the empty boat mooring slots at intervals, maybe they're off on their travels. Birdsong accompanies us all the way. The variety reminds me of a dawn chorus, with trills and cheeps, repeated squawks and whistles, rapid-fire chirps, shouts and shrill calls, dancing notes and strident whoops. I wish I could identify some of them. And no matter how hard we gaze in the relevant directions to track those sounds, the birds remain hidden, yet teasing us with their songs and calls. We do, however, see robins at close hand, for they do not seem to be worried by our presence, merely fluttering just out of sight into the leaf cover of the hedgerow. 
and a few pigeons and jays fly across our path. A canal cruising club boat chugs round the bend, slows down to stop, then two people work to tie it to the mooring rings nearby. Somehow I always think they seem out of place on the canal in their size and shape, but the opportunity to drift from base to a peaceful spot in the countryside in just an hour or so is definitely appealing. A group of hikers with sturdy boots, sleeves rolled up, rucksacks and sun hats stop heartily along the towpath. They are all deeply engaged in conversation, barely noticing us, let alone the scenery. We pass near a caravan park set a little way back from the canal itself. These caravans are permanent structures, but seldom do we see any people nearby, and we assume they are used for holiday escapes. It is certainly a quiet and green venue, no real roads nearby. A lively black dog bounds towards us, the owner's still some distance away. The dog's coat is glistening and wet. He is not really interested in us, but seems keen to find the next spot where he can slither into the water for a refreshing dip. We can see patches of damp towpath over the next 50 yards or so, where he has indeed scrambled out from a dip and shaken himself dry. The accompanying family laugh to us that he is almost taking himself for his walk, or indeed taking them. A few other dog walkers are out with their hounds for afternoon exercise, other folks in pairs or families are enjoying a leg stretch, but it is by no means crowded. Returning to our car an hour later, we comment on how few people are actually out and about on such a lovely day, and indeed how fortunate we are to have this accessible canal-side roaming space so close to home. DNF Soundings. So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish a happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV4 6AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!